Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast. You have chosen wisely. That's from a movie. An Indiana Jones movie. Movie about Jesus' cup. Everyone thought it had golds and diamonds and stuff on it, but it wasn't. Because Carpenter wouldn't drink out of a chalice. Not even today. They haven't changed. Those Carpenters. They're not all the Messiah, though. Just the one. Well, I don't know. Maybe, though. Um, tell you what. If you're having any work done to your house, or if you're walking down the street and you get catcalled or hear a whistle, just check to see if there's stigmata. And if there is... You win! I would like to uh, let you know that the Nerdist channel on YouTube has a new episode of Neil's Puppet Dreams. Neil Patrick Harris visits a doctor's office, and Nathan Fillion is there. So, two names that I think you might want to get on the YouTube. I haven't slept in a long time. I wonder if I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember this intro. Uh, I would like to thank Samsung for being the sponsor of this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. All right. The the, the Samsung Galaxy Note 2 has a a 5.5-inch screen. That means you can watch movies on a 16 by 9 aspect ratio, which is how you want to watch movies. Um, What you could do is set it up so that it's about 2 feet from you and then set up tiny little puppets in front of you that you can be like... Down in front, like you could pretend you're in a theater if you wanted to, or just cut out tiny little uh, uh, Mike Nelson and or Joel, depending on where you fall in the MST3K camp and the bots, and just put tiny, and then just stick it right uh, into the front of your Galaxy Note 2, and then write your own Mystery Science Theaters. That's that's how much fun you could have. Uh, there's also the S-Beam feature. You can tap the back of another S-Beam-enabled device, and you can share large files in seconds. It's just like the phone's just like, mwah, kiss, and they have transmitted the phone. Um, so the phones can make out and transmit images. And then the S-Pen, which basically makes the device a virtual notepad. So there are a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, people are enjoying the Galaxy Note 2 uh, from Samsung. Check it out. It is available now. You have no excuses. You might have some excuses. But in my mind, they're... Not up to snuff, because I'm using snuff as a word now. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is Dimitri Martin, and uh, I've known Dimitri for a long time, and this was a really fun episode. It was really great to have him on, because we were both um, practicing for our hour-long sets at the same time, and we would sort of pass each other at shows, and be like, how are you doing? And we're like, "Ah, well, I'm getting there. Uh, I'm not, not panicking if that's what you're worried about. So uh, it was it was it was really fun to actually have him come on and sort of do a the, the postmortem wrap up of how it all how it all went down. But uh, generally just a, a a sweet funny guy. So here you go, the Nerdist Podcast number two ninety two with Dimitri Martin, and I will see you if you're going to be in Nashville at the shows at Zanies or sh- uh, which would be the sixth to the ninth of this month, which is December, and then the following weekend in Chicago and Rose. And if not, then never mind this part. Mm-hmm. Now entering Nerdist.com.
ever get it? I never got it. Uh, no one ever had it. But you now, didn't see, you didn't see now I got it. Get on your microphones. You got to get up on it. Podcast assemble. <laughs> Why does the podcast always fart? I don't understand. It's a rickety old podcast. We got to. I've been asking that question a lot. Uh, Why does the podcast always fart? Smelliest podcast on the internet. Dimitri Martin. Hey. I'm so glad you're finally on the podcast. This I'm so sorry it took so long to get you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm oh. thrilled to have you on. I'm psyched. I waited. I let it. We, we got it right. This is the exact right time. I think it is. Were you waiting a couple of years just to make sure that it stuck around? You're like, oh, I want to make sure it works out. You know, I got to be honest. I'm I'm like a late adopter. I, I like technology. I don't think I'm like a Luddite or anything, but I'm I'm trepidatious about all this stuff. There's <laughs> kids now growing up that are rejecting technology. My friend was dating a younger girl, and she... Uh, didn't want a cell phone, but opted out to she's get a, four to get a pager. What? Because mm. to her, that's like oh, she wants to be a cardiologist. She's like doing it old school. In the like drug dealers. You think about, oh, this generation, uh, Facebook is something that people got to discover and opt into. Right. But the next generation's parents will be Facebook users. So I think of a lot of things my parents were into, and they didn't seem cool. So it seems like there's a shelf life for a lot of these things. Yeah. Look for my new book, Opt Out. <laughs> How technology is ruining our culture and why you don't have to take part in it. Or they inherit the page that their parents created when their children were born. Yeah, what are you going to do with your parents' Facebook page when they die? Well, I'm probably just going to digitally burn it. My my siblings and I are fighting over it. We're trying to figure out how to divide (laughs) up the... uh, I want the likes. I want the likes. Well, it's just like I have more stock in Farmville than they because I help them My dad's farm is impressive. Maybe it'll be a post-tech generation, you know? There's what actually I, more more people are reading books now than they have in the past few decades. What? They hide it really well, though. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where did that what, hap- what, hap- what happened to all the knighthood invitations that <laughs> that you would get in Facebook's early days? Or like, you've been bitten by a zombie. Pass it yeah. on. Oh, you yeah. have a knighthood invitation. That's what made me like not get Hate into it. it. Yeah, yeah. I joined it, and then it was all that stuff. Yeah. I was like, no, I'll stick with MySpace. I think it's the workhorse in this. Yeah. I think it's really going to stand the test of time. Good choice. So how's your MySpace page doing? It's you great. A lot of I got shows? so much blingy going on. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dimitri did a really great... MySpace thing on the Daily Show. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was oh, that's so right. That was like funny. a long time ago. Right. On, uh, so on MySpace, funny. that's yeah. when all of a sudden you just had millions. I remember the dilemma when I was doing the piece. I was like, "Well, I, I want to make fun of MySpace, but I can't make believe I'm not a user." But I don't want to be gross and promote my MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And you found this? the perfect balance. Perfect balance. If you can watch something online that disappeared. Anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moot point number 55. It's weird, though, because that, that's the fear of doing the kind of topical stuff or stuff that's relevant in the now because you everything's know, so digestible now you don't even really worry about it anymore it's yeah, like, I'd, I'd, thing I'd, I'd like stuff to be able to stick weeks. around though like a bit at least you yeah. know because like you know imagine doing a thing you know a bit about honey boo boo but in in five years you're gonna be, able to be re- remember the show yeah. she was on another show then she got her own show anyway i was thinking about honey boo boo <laughs> i always strive for the most generic Seemingly timeless stuff, which there's no such thing. But <laughs> I try to. Play. Do we have the same phone case? Feet, huh? Feet. No, this is no. a visual thing. No, I just have. It's more of a. I just have more of the red edges. Yeah, my, I have a red phone case for anyone who's listening. I'm if reviewing. you're not listening, I also have a red phone case, but you don't know that. <laughs> I'm reviewing cases on today's show. Are you? Yeah, and I just read the script, and I was like, "You mean like Roe v. Wade no, versus Ferguson?" Yeah. I mean, I give that case a four out of five. Speaking of reviewing cases, oh Dimitri- shit, dude, five out of five. No, five no, out of five no, no, no. for Plessy versus Ferguson. I feel like it's not timeless. What about Kramer versus Why Kramer? Why not versus with the legal stuff? Why the V? Uh, it's for ratings. Yeah, it's for ratings. It's for ratings. It's for it's for court ratings. Well, you pay by the, the letter. That's what it is. Kramer v. Kramer. 
Um, but Dimitri, you actually have a law degree, don't you? No, I, I dropped out after two years. You dropped out of law school yeah. after two years. I did two of the three years, and I bagged it. <laughs> Fuck this. Rich Vulture also did that. Is that right? Yeah, Rich Vulture, I believe, went to uh, law school and then dropped out just and then never ended up telling his mom <laughs> oh, really? who would have been who would it would have killed her. Wow. Yeah, and he just never he even had a whole one man show about keeping the secret from his mom. That's amazing. Visiting her and then yeah, things are great. There's a firm. Your Honor, oh I God. object. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> order. <laughs> Point of order. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you you went to law you went to law school and so where did where did comedy figure did you quit law school to do comedy or did you quit law school because it was a, a horrible and oppressive No I quit law school to do comedy but I hadn't done it yet by the time I quit I hadn't done an open mic or tried it or anything but I was in New York and it was near a couple of comedy clubs and I was like becoming the kind of quote unquote funny guy in law school which just equals Annoying, you know, more <laughs> annoying than uh, the average law student I get. You know, I was trying to do bits or something. But I had never done stand-up, so I don't even, you know, I didn't know. But I went to, like, two or three live comedy shows. I went and saw stand-up a couple of times. And I liked, you know, I knew stand-up from TV, obviously, and I, I was a fan of stand-up comedy. <laughs> but I liked joking around, and so I started just writing jokes. Being like, all right, could I do this? So for a couple of months until I, leading up to the first time I got on stage... When I was still in law school, I was writing some jokes. Your Honor, I, and I, did it. I have a pile of sworn affidavits here that claim that <laughs> women go to the bathroom in groups. <laughs> That's right. oh! it, was, it was all legal. <laughs> uh, on the night in question, a fat man was in a, a robot. <laughs> but I think there, are, I think there are a couple of fields that where you see some of the tool sets that happen in comedy, yeah. which is. You know, to be able to look at a case and break it down and yeah. sort of figure out like what the essential quality is to create an argument and sell something to the hardest audience in the world, a jury. Yeah. You know, like I, I really feel like the guts of a comedy set are in there. I think so. I think the idea of like assumptions, logic, you know, reasoning, building an argument. What was your major in college? People. Uh, I majored in history, but I I would have done philosophy if I'd taken a philosophy course earlier. Later into college, I took a couple of courses in philosophy, and I was like, oh, I like this. Because yeah. those were like just short papers that you'd write, and it mm -hmm. was, you know, it's, what I found funny about philosophy was if you go historically through it, it's, okay, so this guy, is, okay, here's his view of the world. Like, this is his argument, like, He's basically saying, I figured it out, so we're done. And the next <laughs> guy's like, really? Is that what you think it is? Because here's how you're wrong. Like, this is the theory of the world. Like, I fucking nailed and, it. And next? so, like, what's so fun about, because philosophy was my major, and so oh, what's really? so fun about philosophy is that, you know, you look at these philosophers, and you sort of look at them like scientists in a way, but they're really, it's, they're not dealing in real science. Right. They're just thinking really hard yeah. about things that people hadn't, which... Now we take for granted, like, well, everyone fucking puts their opinion about what's what on the internet. Yeah. Like, but there was a time when people just sat around and tried to deconstruct everything we know, and they became famous for that. Totally, and and there, it's such a confidence game. You know, how many comics have we all seen? And some of them, they just bulldoze an audience. With con it's like a confidence game. You just like leave the show, and you're like. What just happened? That guy didn't even say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but he was so confident. Like, he sold me this snake oil, this bullshit on stage. I mean, it's just entertainment, but philosophy doesn't seem that different than it. Not that it's all bullshit. Sure. But yeah, it's that confidence is such an important generator to the whole thing. You know, science, yes, I guess confidence is involved in science, but there's a scientific method. And you still have to things. back it up with facts. You have to back it up. Stand-up is, you know, it's nothing. Where, with, <laughs> with, with, with philosophers, it's like, 
well, there there is no abstract reality, really. Well, right. reality ceases to exist whenever you blink your, whenever you're not observing it. Yeah. Oh fuck! And they'll be like the categorical imperative, and you're like, oh, okay. What well, now? Those are fancy words. <laughs> what I mean. just happened? Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So, is there a world when I'm sleeping, or is there not a world when I'm? Sleeping? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> those guys were just trying to get laid, and they probably were pretty successful. Because I'd imagine so. Women yeah. would be like, wow, you're smart. <laughs> I would. I never thought about Greek, your dick so. like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, big to me isn't necessarily what big means to you. How do we know that this concept of wide really is the same concept? Time doesn't exist. So you're, if you're a virgin now and we have sex, you're still a virgin. You're still a virgin because lap. you yep. need time to tether your virginity to reality. That's right. So it doesn't really matter. Women seem to have gotten screwed in the whole philosophy thing. I don't remember studying many female philosophers. Well, I, I just I don't think culture and society really took them seriously. Unfortunately, right. yeah. it's like totally marginalized. Uh, completely, probably it's, some amazing philosophy came out of the ladies, and it was just. And ladies, you have any philosophy? I didn't, didn't think so. <laughs> How about the ladies? Well, Aristotle came out of a lady. That's right. <laughs> it's mm. true. A lot, all philosophy yeah. has come from ladies. The ladies of philosophy. <laughs> Is um, it a shoe? My, to the theater near you. Why is it that all ladies uh, <laughs> the empty their bowels <laughs> in the bathroom troughs at the same time? My bad. Why is, why is she a proper British lady? I don't know. Why couldn't she be a proper British I'm lady? I'm trying to adjust my seat. Do you guys know how to work these seats? Yes, uh, there's a there's a you. handle what underneath. Where do you want to go higher? Just believe. A little Can bit lower. Can you take you know, the funny thing is, This chair is like... A great metaphor for the diminishing returns of like our technology. And stuff. <laughs> that a chair. Yeah, I mean, the chair was pretty well figured out a long time it ago. It was fine. It's like, all right, your legs go about this long, and we'll do it this height. And there's the back, and you sit in it. You're good. You know. You know, so many people use the phrase "Don't try to reinvent the wheel" that it makes me want to try to figure out how to reinvent the wheel. It's true. It That's sounds true. like a challenge. You know what? If you, you're not. I mean, who does this? But if you have time later and you're bored, you should Google. I think it was on DesignBoom.com. It's one of the sites that I like. It's like a design blog. Mm -hmm. This guy did kind of reinvent the wheel in as much as this student, I think in Europe, some design college, he made a collapsible wheel and they had pictures of it and stuff. <sighs> it was awesome. It was awesome. For but it, bikes, was like it was, I can't visually describe it well enough, but it was like, imagine like two halves, mm -hmm. kind of two semicircles from what I remember with like a hinge on each, the middle of each arc, each cord, whatever it is, geometrically. Yeah. So you kind of pull it apart, and then you can just squish it down. Hmm. And it would be like just squishing a circle. But somehow, when he locks it all together, it's structurally sound. Oh, okay. And, and you can ride the bike. I would be freaked out probably. Sounds like it's yeah, going to be on the next Dyson vacuum. I'm always afraid <laughs> of just the fucking wheel falling off when I'm riding a bike. That front, yeah. front wheel just going down. Yeah. Because like it's... It's weird when those bikes where you could just, you know, have the front wheel take it off so yeah. easily. Yeah. I don't like that. I need yeah. to be able to fucking get like a, you know, just bolts and just make it so it doesn't move. So you don't topple <laughs> you over the handlebars. You yeah. Yeah. And, and chances the, are that's happened. I mean, just there's so many people have bikes. There's so many of those wheels. Lots of people it's filming people on the internet. Statistically. Yeah. Yeah. Statistically, it's has to, you could be one of those guys. Yeah. There. It's very scary. Jonah just hits parked cars on his bike. I did it once. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Out of anger? No. <laughs> I was, uh, I was riding my bike home with uh, Deanna, and I, I was going faster than her, and I turned my head and was like, uh, like hurry up, slow poke. And then I uh, looked forward, and like I was kind of too close to a car to really just turn away and, and just went like, uh, and then right and broke off the side view mirror. I, I did that. Yeah? I did that in New York. I did that. I had, a, I had a scary stretch. You know, when you have distance from something you've gone through, you get it. You can 
define it a little bit better and understand something was going on, even yeah. if you don't know what was going on. But in a, in the course of a, a week or 10 days or something, I had two really bad accidents. Well, one really bad one and then that. But the first one was I used to skate all over Manhattan. You know, like yeah. I had a longboard, but before that, I had all these different skateboards, but I eventually I settled on the longboard. I was hoping you meant roller skates. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> oh, roller skating accident yeah. sounds even Longboard, sadder. not that far off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I had this, between longboards, I bought this slalom board. It's like shaped like a fish. Oh, yeah. Right? And the tail, you can't, there's no kicktail really, but they're loose trucks, so you can really like lean quickly and have pretty good dexterity and turn pretty fast. Anyway, I lived in Brooklyn at the time, and I used to skate into Manhattan kind of as a workout and i don't know why but it was like the summer i'm like i'll skate into the city then i can skate to my gigs and everything anyway this is gonna i'll make this story quick um i was skating on the brooklyn bridge <laughs> and part of it of course is uh planks so you're not you're gonna ride your skateboard on that part but when you come to the down part of the bridge where you're either coming into brooklyn or into manhattan you know what i mean not yeah. the middle part um that's when it's paved so yeah. you can you can ride a bike you can do whatever well, I guess you can ride a bike on the whole thing, but for a skateboard, it's great. I got on my skateboard coming into Manhattan. I'd walked it for part of the bridge. And I, I remember for some reason I was wearing a bathing suit, basically. I was wearing like a kind of longer bathing suit shorts because okay. it was hot. This is summer. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the evening. And <laughs> I had a shorts. t-shirt. And so my t-shirt is off. It was a different time in my life. But I, <laughs> it sounds like... Are you sure this is you? <laughs> Are you remembering? Did you see someone else do this? Uh, but anyway, anyway I, I had a Tasty J coming out of my mouth. The hubris. I'm wearing flip-flops. I'm on the new skateboard. T-shirt is off. And what happens is I'm going down the bridge, and I'm picking up speed on the skateboard. Anyone who's ridden a skateboard learns at some point that hills are really tricky. Mm -hmm. You need some space at the bottom of that hill. You need some a flat... You need to be able to distribute the speed yeah. over time, over distance. And even going down the hill, when I ride on steeper hills, you know, you do turns, S-turns back and forth. If you don't, you get the wobbles. You get the wobbles, and yeah. that means danger. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't just, what do they call that? Bombing a hill? Like, when you yeah. go straight down, you, you better have some place to go when you get to the bottom. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going, and I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And I'm starting to get a little too fast, but I'm back and forth dragging my foot a little bit with the flip-flop. <laughs> Flip-flop's not a good idea. <laughs> Some kid comes by on a bike, so I have to wait for him to go by. <sighs> so that's time that I'm going straight. But there were three kids on bikes. Oh. Uh, now I'm in trouble. Like, I'm really <laughs> in trouble. I'm going so fast. And something's happened here where I'm going too fast, and I'm past this point of like putting my foot down. I'm trying, but it's like hitting the ground hard. It's yeah. like the speed's too great, and it's the flip-flop. I'm going to kind of fuck up my foot. So... I don't know what to do. It's one of the few times in my adult life where I was completely suspended my thinking and I was just like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no puzzle, no outcomes. Yeah. I was, it was so horrifying, man. And I was zooming past pedestrians who were coming up because there's an up and a down path. So I'm flying by people with probably the most frightened look on my face, bathing suit, <laughs> no shirt, <laughs> nighttime, they're like, this guy's going to kill himself. T-shirt tethering, like, past flapping behind yeah, you. Yeah, seriously. Now, you get to the bottom of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Manhattan side, and it goes into a crosswalk. There are some bushes, <laughs> a couple of benches, 
<laughs> like a little metal <laughs> fence, if anybody knows this. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, spikes. Are you saying there's yeah, no runaway like, skateboard ramp? Yeah, there's, oh. no, yeah, there's, there's no, no gravel yeah. pit. There's no yeah. way station or, or yeah. runaway yeah. douchebag kind of ramp. <laughs> so I realize I have to get off the board, and I'm, my best bet is to run it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear, this is one of the scariest moments of my life. Because I'm a white middle class guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I step off the board the fastest I can. And I, f- I flipped and fell so hard. The board disappeared. Um, it was really scary. And I had cuts all over my back. So I fell in a way that I didn't even fall forward. The momentum was so great that I actually flipped over. And the oh, impact shit. was all on my shoulder and back and everything. And anyway, these ladies, people were horrified. A couple people saw me fall. It was just like a bullet coming and this guy just full like wiping out on skis but just in a bathing suit on concrete <laughs> and somebody brought me my board out of the bushes they were like oh my god are you okay and my collarbone was really sore so oh. i got really lucky it was really close the bone was saying you know we we bent as far as we could yeah, yeah. you're okay but don't do that just again, know that we helped out. you out quite yeah. a bit and i remember i had a double date with leo allen i don't know what i was thinking but i was going to a double date <laughs> in a bathing suit and a t-shirt and flip-flops with my I was skateboarding to the date That's so you really cared about this girl oh <laughs> cut out it, it was like kind of a blind date like he had was with the girl and she was bringing her friend and on the way I stopped at a CVS to get my back taken care of and I walked in the CVS and the guy working there was like you can't come in here without a shirt and I turned around and just showed him like my back was all bloody and it was like <laughs> dirt and everything he's like oh okay what do you need a peroxide please and like Paper towels or tissues. Now, at that point, are you trying hard to not sound like you're tw- a tweaker? Where you're just <laughs> yeah. like, I am a regular person who has been yeah. in an accident. Made, I'm a regular person with extremely bad judgment. I know how yeah. this looks. <laughs> I, yeah. I was yeah. in law school. Yeah. I'm a, you're right. <laughs> I see that you're scared. I, there is no bear loose in New York I do City. remember that kind of thinking. And in New York, L.A., there are two places where that happens, where... You're like, look, I know there are a lot of crazy people around here. Right. And I look kind of messy, so it could go either way, but I'm... How can I vouch for myself? Right. What's the shortest distance? I'm a like, square. The same. I'm a square. I'm a, please. I was in the math team. Yeah. <laughs> so I can list me. my allergies. Mm-hmm. I show up to the date and I'm early, and Leo's there, and I and I'm like, can you do me a favor, man? And he, like, just washes my back. Oh, the date. So sweet. God. And then I put the t-shirt on for the date, but it was like you know, it was <laughs> abrasive cuts. Mm-hmm. It's not deep. It's not a line. Yeah. It's a scrape. It's just like yeah. slicing off. Yeah. That's what I had. So it was. You can't. There aren't really big enough. Just like band-aids. a cheese, oh. like a cheese knife, where you just, just <laughs> exactly. like the top yeah. layer. Oh, it's terrible. And then seven days later, whatever it was, eight days later, I was riding f- from like stand up New York to the comic strip. Yeah. Upper West to the Upper East Side, and I had my bike. <laughs> you had sore enough and skateboard. I, I was. Everyone's like, "Dude, get off your skateboard." Yeah. You're like, "Are." You're right. I said, I'm right. <laughs> so I'm on a bike, and I do the same thing you did. I was riding, and I heard like a clicking noise yeah. in my back tire. And I turned to look, and when I turned forward again, I was going directly into a parked car. Yeah, and there's, there's and like, it's boom. like the amount like you would have to turn, you would end up just going over your handlebars. And so you just. And my fist took the mirror off. I, I broke the mirror, and the, I left it dangling. I felt did you bad. feel strong? I felt so, and I got to the comic strip, and my hand was all bloody. It was just like my back, like a week before, and I was like, I think I'm, I have a death wish, and I'm not sure yeah, why. Yeah. But you I, also seem to be unbreakable. I was sure. unbreakable. Yeah, I ended yeah. up hitting it, hitting the the, 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 rear, uh, the side view with my rib cage, Ooh. and I, re- I couldn't even lie on my right side for a long time. 
I mean, the last. That's this your favorite was, was side. A year yes. and a half ago, when did you have a broken arm? Yeah, that was like yeah, about wrist, a year and a half ago. I don't know if it was ago. your wrist or arm. Yeah. No, it was my elbow. It was my right elbow. Broke it doing his pilot for yeah, Comedy Central. Right, Central that's pilot. Right. Yeah. So would you jump in a trash can or something? Or yeah, jumped yeah, over. I was going through an obstacle course yeah. and jumped through a trash can. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, oh my god, I fucking broke my elbow. But it's gonna be so funny when the show gets picked up, and, <laughs> and it's Nobody just this cares. cute story. But instead, what happened is no show, and you still had a broken elbow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still <laughs> when it gets cold. I still it as makes a reminder, and noise. it just remind every time it gets cold, and you're like, ah, Jonah's arcade. Jonah's arcade. See, we inherit an interesting space for injuries. Our <laughs> injury stories. I mean, I guess everyone's injury story is interesting to themselves. But on the one end of the spectrum, you have firefighters. <laughs> professional athletes, you know what I mean? People who would be warriors probably in another era. You know, actual soldiers, of mm -hmm. course. The other far end would be, I guess, really obese or old people. You know what I mean? People yeah. who are not in a regular range of motion and things <laughs> happen to them. But we're kind of like in between where... We're not professional anything besides talkers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and comedy you know accidents, I mean? comedy accidents hurt 30% more than regular accidents because true. because a comedy accident is when you're doing a comedy thing there's a vanity reason behind it Absolutely. I want people to think this is funny I want to get attention but in other words it's not necessary for survival it's yeah. showing off or anyone's yeah. survival it's showing off and then you get then hurt a golf and it's cart like runs this over you format <laughs> <laughs> Myra no you were doing that for survival you, so you were in a golf, golf cart. cart so this is true everything's playing out true here yeah, yeah, yeah. we're finding out the kinds of injuries yeah. we have um, I want to I want to talk to you about your experience with the with the comedy special yes because we both um, when did you tape yours? The day after yours, I think. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So we both taped ours in February. Yeah. And about a month before, I, we would sort of pass each other as we <laughs> yeah. were working on the sets, and we both had that sort of like frazzled look in the eye with like stacks of notes. Like, I don't know. That's true. Uh, Exams. Your like notes exam. are amazing, by Thanks. the way. I'm uh, organized. Very organized. They're very, they're very organized, right? Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing in comedy. You never hear like, man, Richard Pryor was so organized. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I, he could have well, been. Seinfeld is. Seinfeld is. Yeah, Seinfeld. So John Rivers, but it's funny when you see Woody Allen and it's just scraps of paper. Yeah, and he's like, oh, here's the. Or Randy Kindler's got the stacks of note cards. Yes, right. But we passed each other with notebooks, scraps of paper, and I and I said, I really want you to come on the podcast so we can talk. I want to hear what your experience was like, and just sort of and sort of hash that out a little bit because you've done specials before, though. This wasn't your first. I did a Comedy Central present a long time ago and then I did a, an hour for them in 2006 and then since then you know I did my series but I didn't do any specials or anything and I oh kinda, you did a presents when it was you did the you did the half hour Comedy Zone Presents is the half hour you did a half hour when it was the, the choicest time to do it it was yeah. like early in the run of the series yeah. and they didn't have a lot to rerun yet yeah and so right, so I got I got good exposure and even my hour there weren't that many hours yet on Comedy Central of original programming as opposed yeah. to HBO's that specials that they bought or something. So that got good airtime and play. And I did Comedy Central Presents when there was still some um, customization, I guess you could call it, or it it still had some sort of a an individuality to it. It was because, like a mini hour. Right. And you were allowed to have the set a certain way because right. it, yeah. it evolved into just like it's the same set and we just put your name and right, right. that little box there is a different name. Cheaper. So, yeah. I remember yeah. actually seeing you shortly after your uh, Comedy Central presents, and I, like the, my first question was like, "How bad did you have to fight to segment it the way you did?" Yeah, that's right, and that was that was hard. And I've talked about that where we, I did, I fought to have the drawings in it. I fought to have my friends come out on stage. Yeah. I fought to have the boombox and stuff, 
and they fought me up until the week before and were going to pull my special. They were going to kill the deal. And then I was like, that's fine. I don't, cause I don't want to do it if I can't do that stuff in it yeah. because I saw my friends do their specials and I saw them edit my friend's specials. I would go to the tapings in New York for years. They were in that same room. I saw Sloven and Allen. I saw Zach's. I saw Louis, Louis Black, tons of people. Yeah. I would just go to the tapings cause you know, commas could go and you could go hang out. I was friends with everybody and you see them kill live. And then they make them come out and do extra time if they didn't do, yeah, you know, the, the exact if they didn't do the time they wanted. Even though a guy could go in with twenty two minutes, have it timed perfectly, they make you go back out on stage and do, oh, you that, do another six minutes because mm-hmm. we our editors, you know, because they want to give themselves a luxury in the edit. It's a machine that happened to Lavelle Crawford, who was when when Furman and I did our half hour, he was the other half hour that they were taping at the same time. And he did that. He did exactly like 22 minutes or whatever, and they made him come out and do another 10. And use that stuff. I guess so, yeah. You know, it's just luck of the draw. Right. But they'll take... I saw guys' closers end up as like the, the bump, you know, the end of the second act to go to commercial break. Yeah. So, so when I got the chance, I was like, all right, I've been doing stuff at, at the time at Luna Lounge in these small rooms around Manhattan. Great. I loved Luna I Lounge. I loved Luna. Monday yeah. night. This was a great room on the Lower East Ludlow Side. Ludlow and Houston. On Ludlow. It's gone now. The actual building is gone. I think it's an apartment building or something. It's right across from Pianos. Right. It's near Pianos. Uh, Max Fish. Mm-hmm. Oh, that Max whole strip, Fish is the whole still downtown. That Monday night, yeah, that 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 uh, that show was really fun. It really Slipper room near there. Uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's around the corner. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was uh, I. I but that I, was a great I love room. That. And that love was that a place room. that was it encouraged experimentation, and so you could try a bit with your diary or some drawings or music or whatever. So when I got the chance to do the thing, they said, you know, you have the one-liners, just do the special. We've seen your stand-up. You can just do stand-up. I said, yes, but I really want to... I figured they rerun it. You make no money, but what you get is exposure. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I keep saying that because I, I hate ending up being b- verbose, but my first segment I did straight stand-up, and I figured they're going to edit that. They're going to do whatever they want with it. I can't control that. Second one, have the drawings. Good luck editing that. You got <laughs> continuity problems. There's a drawing on the pad. That's there. You could only go to a tight of my face if you want to just remove a drawing, but that's yeah. going to be weird. And then it says the end, so I get to determine the end of my bit, and when we go to commercial, the jokes are in an order that I determine, and they can't do anything with it. And then the next one, I had a boombox. I recorded this little waltz with a piano. It's in a cassette. We come from commercial. I press play on the thing, and it's looping this thing I played. So basically, you're playing a chess game. I'm playing a chess game. So, <laughs> so in this in that segment, if you want, and I had a guitar too. Like, why? Why does the guy have a guitar and the thing? I would just strum after jokes because now to t- to pull a joke out, you got to find a break in the piano thing and the guitar and me talking. <laughs> and then the next act was like my friends come out, like the curtain opens, and people come out in costumes. Yeah, Eugene so, and Sloven and Allen. Yeah, because you can't go backwards. Like once the thing's open, the set looks different. Yep. So sure enough, it was exactly as I recorded it. And the first act was changed because that's what they could change. Uh, but the rest of it was exactly as I wanted it. I had heard other people complain about their half-hour special and be like, I, you know, they cut all this stuff out that I did and it wasn't exactly what I wanted. But, you know, I, I so far, I've never had anything but a great experience with them. Like, they our half-hour was edited mm-hmm. well. You know, I was involved in the hour special, and and I thought they did a great job. Yeah, yeah. so let's talk about the hours if if you want. But sure. But the end of that whole thing was, it worked out fine my half hour, but I had no time to rehearse, and I had one shot at bits I had never done before. (laughs) My closer was this stupid thing with my friends coming out in costumes. Where your jokes come from, right? Yeah, it's not like I did it in a theater or in any room ever. (laughs) The first time ever I did it was then in front of that audience. I got one shot. Luckily, it worked well enough. 
it was like being on a tightrope, you know? Whereas, you know, now you did your hour. I just did this hour. I did 30 shows leading up to my hour. Mm-hmm. It still wasn't perfect, and I wish I did this or that different, but I kind of knew what I was doing after 30 times. Are you, you know? too much of a perfectionist, though, or do you really yeah. feel like that? No, um, I think it's somewhere in between. You know, I'm obsessed with this idea of diminishing returns. You know, in life, when you just do something for too long, then you can look back and you're like, oh, the sweet spot was there. <laughs> I should have gotten out then. Yeah. I wish, you know, it's like Seinfeld. I mean, he seems like such a smart guy. He gets out of his series when it's still kind yeah. of going up. Yeah. And it gets to be Seinfeld, like forever. Right. And probably maybe still would have been for another year. But he sensed, all right, I've reached a point, And after this is going to be diminishing returns, I'm getting out. Well, for me, the special was that um, I, I had maybe a half hour that I really liked a lot of stuff that I was doing currently and stuff that I hadn't done on like, you know, the John Oliver or Doug yeah. Ben or whatever, the other few other stand-up shows I had done on Comedy Central. And then November they called, late November, actually maybe early December, or it was December, they called and said, okay, we're going to give you an hour, but it shoots the beginning of February. And I was like, oh, fuck, I, I, have, to, I have to really pull together in my mind, 45 new minutes on top of the half hour, because you really need like 75 yep. for, yep. you know, or like uh, between 65 and 75 minutes. And so then it was a mad dash to, it was really fun and exciting, but it, it was a mad dash to hone the material that I had and then cobbled, you know, like just a bunch of new stuff together. Um, it's tricky because it's great to have the deadline. Yeah. But we've all been doing stand up long enough where I think you can be pretty honest with yourself and say, like, you know, if I had this amount of time, I'd still be last minute and rushing, but this amount of time would be actually sensible. The amount of time you're giving me is going to be a challenge. It's going to really be hard. Right. Just because you, you need audiences. Yeah. I can write a million jokes in my apartment, but I still have to go find enough audiences to try this stuff out on in enough places, and there's only so many shows you can do in any given amount of time, you know? And then you're sort of picking, and then for me, I was trying to balance and going, well... You know, I want to do some shows that I know are my audience, but then I want to step out of that and do shows yeah. where I don't know. Like, I, you know, I did practice sets in um, like Long Island or something like it's just nice. way at way out of town leading up to the few days leading up to the special just to sort of yeah. ma make sure because, you know. Yeah, that's smart. I mean, when I did the Dimitri Martin person was my first hour. That was in Austin. And that was great. That was at the end of like a 28-city tour. I did two shows in one night. But even that one, similarly, they told me, hey, so we'll do an hour with you, but you have to do it in November. Because I was <laughs> like, well, they said, we'll do an hour with you. I was like, great. I think by April, I'll be good. Right. And they said, no, you have to do it in November. I was thinking, yikes. I really, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off. That's a lot less time to get this thing together. Yeah. And then we got to Austin. It was two shows in one night. We got there, and it turns out the L.A. crew and the Texas crew weren't quite getting along. And <laughs> then the people at the that. theater had had a play in there, and they wouldn't allow us to get in there before the people from the play got to break down all their stuff. So there was like this day that we thought we had that was removed from the schedule. Ugh. It was a complete nightmare. And of I course, you sound like and you sound like a douchebag when you come and you go, "I'm taping a TV show," and they're like, "We don't give a shit." Oh, totally, yeah. totally. And it's like no tears of a clown, like. I don't know if that's the right usage of that term. But <laughs> I'm a clown and I was upset. So yeah. It's the right song. Yeah. No, but it was like, it was a disaster. And the, the I remember the lighting guy and the sound guy were fighting 
Mm. The audience was in the lobby, and they'd already been held for like 15 or 20 minutes on the first show because that was going to affect the second show. They were fighting, a shouting match. And I was on the side of the stage thinking, I'm dead, I'm dead, this is crazy. First taping of that hour, I used hardly any of it. It was a disaster. The lighting changed, like all these things happened. Oh. And I remember between shows, I was yelling, I've done this three times in my, at least three times in my career where I'm like, Talking to my agent, I'm like in the alley behind the theater. I'm like, I'm gonna buy it back. We're not doing this. I'm not airing this. <laughs> I, I have this. I don't know where I started to think that you can buy things back. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get the master tapes. Don't worry. Whatever, whatever, whatever they paid me, I'll double it. It's yeah. just this idea, like money I don't have. I'm like, I'm buying it back. I don't want it out there. I don't want my name on this. Like I don't want. I'm buying it back. And he's like, You're not buying it back. You can't buy it. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. And then the second taping went better for that one, and like that was the bulk of my special for this one. I didn't want to do it in New York. I love New York. But after touring all over, you go to these other cities and people are excited that you're there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like an event. Yeah. If you it, do your thing in Denver or something. It is, but I love the the, the vibe of New York audiences is is really great. And and it's been particularly great um with with stuff that I've taped there stand up wise. I don't know. I I, I think yeah. Audiences, they're, they're, they're energetic, they get it, they understand, they give back, which is sort of, you know, it's what you need with an audience, to give a little bit. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you know, you're, you've been from L.A. for a while, though. Yes, long time. So if, it might be similar, even though they're very different cities. Like, for me, I spent 14 years in New York. Got it. So I did so many spots around there. I love New York. That's my favorite place to do stand-up. But when I'm taping something, I'm just like... Yikes, I feel like they're like, oh, yeah, Dimitri, he's always around. <laughs> so it's like I lose some of the juice, even though I love those crowds. And I, I don't think there's a better place as an American comedian to build up your act. Than, than New York. Than New York. Yeah, I, New always, York. I always tell people, like, if they're, if they're near a hub city like Chicago or San Francisco or Austin or, like, like cities with good little comedy hubs and, like, learn there, then go to New York. Yeah. Then you can go to L.A. Yeah. Once you've sort of honed your act, if you want to go into the entertainment business rather than just do stand-up, go to L.A. If you want to just do stand-up, tour the country, you know? Right. New York is yeah. great for making stuff. L.A. is great for selling stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you can bounce back and forth between the two, it seems like you could time it right. Well, you can go to New York, make some new stuff, come back, try to sell it. Did, yeah. did you feel, was, was your experience good for this special? Yes, it was. My only gripe, and I, you're right, it's like being a perfectionist or just looking at the negative, was... I remembered some of the road shows, and Austin was great. But the, I, I asked them, I said, I want to do my special in Austin. And they said, you did your last one there, like, change it up. It was six years ago. It doesn't matter. The crowds <laughs> were great. Even with my half-ass, totally, like, ham-fisted special, it was still great in Austin. And so my, I did a warm-up show in New York on Wednesday before the gig in that room. Mm -hmm. And the crowd was just, like, too cool for school. And, like... Jokes that were doing really well in like almost every other city. Some of them were just like meh, and I thought this sucks. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a shitty special, and so I freaked out. Couldn't do anything about it. But you get on the phone in the alley and buy it back. I, I flew to Austin. I went to that alley. Yeah. Said, I told my agent, "Get yeah. down here." Get you down are here. spending a lot of money. I don't yeah. do it right, you know. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist, and I knew that that's where I freaked out. So that alley. In oh, you went to Buyback Alley. I went to Buyback Alley. You know, <laughs> buy back everything that you regret. <laughs> so, so it, it, I think it worked out just fine, and it was good, and I did have a good experience. And Comedy Central was, they they treat me very politely and. No, there were no crazy notes. I don't know about for you, but it was no, fun. No, you know? I've had, I honestly, honestly, every experience I've had working with them, I've, I've, 
luckily it's been a really great experience and they're, you know, they've been really cool about stuff and they don't hassle me and they're nice to me. Like it, it genuinely, as much as I thought I would flip out about this special, I never really had a flip out moment about it. Like it, when I, when I first found out I was going to do it, I had a little, a couple of flip out days of like, yeah. I'm not ready. Uh, this is, this is my special. It's got to be right, perfect. Right. And then something in me just said, you know what? Just fucking do it. Just get it. Yeah. D- just do your head down, do it and don't make it a, I didn't want my experience of the first special to be, Oh, I was a wreck. Oh my God. It was. Yeah. A and so I didn't. And it was really fun. Yeah. It was really fun. It's cool. I, you know, after going overseas, the first time I ever got to go over there, 2003, to really do shows in Scotland, meeting so many of the comedians over there, many people I'd never heard of, but a lot of whom had hours. That's where you, oh my God, I'm, I'm good. So you went to Edinburgh Festival, and then I saw you right after that at Bumbershoot, and that's when you brought these that's two right. young uh, Kiwi friends of yours named Brett and Jermaine, right. and put them on I gave the Bumbershoot Festival. You gave them time. your stage time. Yeah. And I was they, like, you guys should come if you're going to be in America. And they crushed, and then Fly to the Concords. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We hung out. I had met those guys and had so much fun. So Edinburgh fun for you? I loved it. I did it four times. But it taught me a lot about expectations. Because they have that festival every year, and there aren't as many TV opportunities, and there aren't television specials the way you have. There's no um, Fallon or Conan, really. You know, there's Jonathan Ross, but it's not the same. People don't, they don't have the same system to mm-hmm. go through. So people gear up every year for that festival, and they'll do 30 shows in a month. They'll do 30 hour-long performances of a show that they wrote. And if they want to come back the next year, then they have a new hour mm-hmm. that they do 30 times at that festival the next summer. So they just, festival's over, they start working on next year's show. So the expectation just dictates a much more prolific crop of comedians than what we have here. And I, of course, Americans could be as prolific, but we don't have the same structure. So Louis does it. Yeah, like a Louis few guys it. do it. But over there, Louis's not an anomaly. They all do it. Mm-hmm. There they're doing an hour everywhere. Here they're trying to get five clean minutes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. true. You said it succinctly. I mean, that's that was an interesting thing to me. So it just changed the way I understood building up my act. Yeah. You know, to try to be on that clock, which I, I can't quite do because I'm trying to write other things and stuff. But I thought it was interesting that you can do an hour every year if you have to. Yeah. So with, you know, the... I always kind of I always wanted to be able to write like two line jokes because it just they're fun and they're yeah. they're quick and they you know you can yeah. catch you can kind of broadside people with yeah. them and I don't write them well like my stuff just drags out um, and then as the, the more the, but and the more I was into it the more I became afraid of two line jokes because I go oh but then they sort of there's sort of like a 50-50 chance you know yeah. that people are going to get it or not yeah. I mean maybe that's not the right number but it's basically that whole joke sinks or swims based on the turn that you can put on it's it. It's hard to hide. It's hard to hide with, with if you're just doing straight jokes. It, there's a very objective moment where you're like saying, I always say it's like telling one-liners is like, it's like asking a girl out on a date like a bunch of times in a row. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a definitive spot where you yeah. ask, you're asking her out. We're not friends. Like yeah. I like you. Yeah. You know, so it's like that kind of a trust fall. Whereas if you if I mean, they're all difficult in different ways, right? If you do longer bits, it just has to earn its keep. Right. And at least with the short jokes, they're just like little Skittles. You're just popping one after the other. And like, right. I didn't like that flavor. What about this one? So they're yeah. kind of easy come, easy go. But to headline, you need a lot of them. But did you ever want to be... Was there ever any sense of... 
you know, maybe I want to be the comp. Maybe I want to be a Louis or a Marin style of comic where I just bear everything on stage. Or- you know, in, in Edinburgh, the first year, that wasn't a one-liner show. That was a personal show that ended up on the internet, and it's not a good recording of it. But I talked about palindromes and all this personal stuff. Again, I'm not Louis or Richard Pryor or Marin. I, I was on the math team, you know, but it was very honest. Like, I just talk about myself. My second show I did in Edinburgh was about my marriage and divorce when I was young. It was about falling in love with this girl in high school. It was super personal, long stories. Um, and then the third show was also personal. These are shows I didn't do here. I did them at UCB in New York five times ever, and then I took them overseas, did them in those festivals, and that was it. Because it was interesting. They didn't know me as a one-liner comic over there. I was a storytelling... you know. So it was cool that the stuff worked, and I can do that. But what I found was... When you do really personal stuff, the show is you. Mm-hmm. Even the one-liners are me too. But the, the line between me and the content is so thin, mm-hmm. almost invisible, often gone, that if I do it too many times, not only do I get sick of the show and hate the show, I hate myself. Oh, that's interesting. Because <laughs> the show is me. I'm, I'm just using up, I'm cannibalizing my personal, private experience. To sell it to people. So what I've done is I've, I've already taken what's a very tenuous, tiny line between me and the content as a comedian. We sell ourselves. Strippers maybe are the only people who sell more of themselves than we do, in a sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? A singer-songwriter, yes, but often it's veiled. Right. There's like some distance between yeah. you and the content. A novelist wrote a book. You know, you have a band, you sell the band. So you're, so you're basically on stage showing your emotional tits. Yeah, which, I, which of course is the most captivating, best stuff. It's Richard Pryor is Richard Pryor because he's doing that. Right. So I love that, and I aspire to it. I just haven't found a way to do it that doesn't make me end up hating myself and doing it over and over again. But I, whereas jokes, I love the puzzle of it. There's of course. A, you know yeah. what I mean? There's a game to it that is still really personal. There's something very vulnerable about being like, like we were talking about, like, that's the punchline. Like, I think this is funny. That's like trying to sing on key. It's well, like I'm singing right now. This is it. I'm I'm going for it. You know? But 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 you know the type of stuff that, you know, but the type of stuff that you do does inform a lot about how you problem solve. It does. Yeah. It informs a lot about how you see things because there is, there's always sort of a you know a backdoor into something like you know peeing into the pool is different than peeing, peeing in the pool is different than peeing into the pool. I think so. And as I've gotten older, like I I, I have migrated more towards longer bits. But it's interesting to hear you say the reciprocal. And Jonah, I don't know about for you, but if it's like, geez, I thought of this one-liner and... I have nowhere to put them. That's uh, what happens. Is yeah. They end up being these little sore thumbs. Yeah, yeah it's, it's sometimes I'll, I'll have them around if, like a, if a longer bit doesn't do well. I'll, like, I'll say a one-liner just to get them back up. It's a parachute. Then, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, so. you, or I find that sometimes I'm trying to reverse engineer them into longer bits. Mm, that's interesting. So that they become a punch of a longer bit rather than... Just you know, like yeah. floating out there and disconnected to anything. Yeah. But I do like the sorbet idea of like, ah, uh, here's a little yeah. you know yeah. intermission before the next uh, chunk. I just, yeah. I just dump them on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then the thing is, I put them on Twitter, but then that that goes away. The feed goes away. But at least I got the idea out there, and if people respond to it, it's what you know. It's like I think the great luxury we have doing comedy is that you get this kind of unedited opportunity with a live audience, of course, to just express yourself. You can try anything. I could be, tomorrow, starting tomorrow, just do really personal, long stories. And I have that prerogative. The crowd might not like it, but no one's stopping me. Right. I, you know what I mean? It's up to me. <laughs> I do know that my favorite performers, I, 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 
I think I realized this last year or the year before. For me, it's really helpful if I can articulate something in words. Probably it's why I do one-liners. Yeah. It's almost like I need one-liners for myself to remind me about my principles, like what I believe, what I understand. It's, it sounds stupid, but it really does help me. In diagrams, too. I don't know, whatever. But I remember thinking that my favorite performers, probably from any era, and not just in comedy, but actors and I guess musicians, too, but certainly comedians, they have this great almost paradox where they're both, they're equal parts, like commanding and vulnerable at the same time. Mm-hmm. Too much of either, I don't like. If it's too, if it's invulnerable and just too confident and commanding, it's like, I don't care. It's inhuman. I, I'm yeah. not connected to that person. And if it's too vulnerable, it's like, please like me. It's cloying. It's syrupy. It's gross and sen- too sentimental. Yeah. It's weak. It's too porous, you know? Yeah. But the right balance, and I keep mentioning Richard Pryor because not too long ago I saw one of his amazing specials, and you're like, that's awesome. You're never in doubt about his command of the stage. Mm-hmm. But you're also like, you know he's really giving you something. He's really giving you something, you know? And yeah. like those two together, I think, are authenticity. Like that's like, you can't fake that. Like, yeah, well, it's even the, best, the way you know? he started that's, that one special, I think, Live Sunset Strip, he's like, like, hello, hope I'm funny. Yeah. Just like, that's very, it's like, it, it's that's amazing. how he starts the show. And confidently, he says that, I hope I, I hope this is going to be okay. Sometimes I think about Bernie Mac. If you see Bernie Mac yeah. in the early days on the Def Jam specials and stuff, when he's like, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. Mm. Like, God, that's such a smart idea. That's so yeah. true. Like, I think a <laughs> yeah. comedian can can't, relate to that. You can't fake that, though. You can't fake that. That's the thing, yeah. You can't, you can't fake that, and that's, that's experience. And, but, you know, I found when I do start to... And, and I think, you know, I think the, the Richard Pryors and the Louis of the world make people think, oh, it's just as easy as getting up and telling personal stories. But it's a very hard thing to do because... You know, when you start telling a really personal story on stage, you have to figure out what's fucking funny about it because otherwise people just go, oh, like they just feel bad. I call it the who gives a shit test. (laughs) And and like, that's my problem with stories is that everyone has memoirs and it's so anecdotal and all this stuff. But who gives a shit? You have to be really good. It's deceptive. You have to be like, Louis figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. Because I give a shit. If he tells a good story and there's some sort of a universal in it. It you took, know, it's authentic. It took a long time, though, because if you watch... Yeah. And it, and it really happened, I think, it happened, you know, around the time his kids were born. Yeah. Because before that, he was a fucking amazing concept and joke writer, and he would write these really yeah, incredible bits about going to hell and, come here, suck my dick. Oh, you suck that guy's dick? He doesn't work here. Yeah. Oh, I thought you... You know, yeah. like these the, really great sort of philosophical... The racist guy that grew up on a farm. It's like, well, were the animals racist? <laughs> Yeah, all that stuff. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it's you know, he has this amazing skill set. He knows, you know, he he's figured out where comedy is, and it's very authentic. I think it's like fine. And then it's and then it's personal. Then it has substance. Yeah, and I think it's it's just one of those things that he found the weird root in his brain. Like you know, I pour the you know the concept in this one, and it just filters through, and it comes out of my mouth funny. Because you think about well, in a lot, yeah, yeah, they become at a certain point. You do comedy so much that hopefully the goal is you become kind of a machine in the way that you anything that you consume is going to come out like a hay baler. And right. this, yeah. it doesn't even really. You don't have to sit down and go. Man, but what's also interesting is that it is we're so dependent. It's such a dialogue. There's such a dialectic. Our job, like it's not. You don't just. I, I can't think of other good examples, counterexamples, but I do know that, like, if I were a musician, I could theoretically practice, 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 and just play in my room. I could get a guitar when I was ten years old, listen to Hendrix and the Beatles and everybody, and get amazing, and then emerge at like age thirty, 
with like you know 50 yeah. unbelievable songs but i still think even as a musician there's you a need different, to, yeah. you have to figure out how to connect to an audience I, I no matter how right. technically good you are and i think with stand up it's definitely a it it is a dialogue yeah. the audience is a unified body and you are having a one on one conversation with them so i think about it like well if i'm having a phone conversation with someone and they just make a lot of jokes and they're funny, but I don't really get any substance out of it. Do I walk away going, oh, yeah, that guy was funny, you know, but yeah. I don't know if I def necessarily feel like I have to talk to that person all yeah. the time because yeah. there wasn't really any substance. So but I you know what it is? The, the dialogue is interesting because it's not just between you and the audience in the room. And of course, it's you and yourself, like you were saying, finding the root in your head or whatever. There's the larger audience. It's just where comedy happens to be at. Mm -hmm. And I think. You know, Louis is a great example because he's been well respected by so many comedians for a long time, and he's been funny in different ways. But there's almost an interesting confluence, I think, for Louis, where he was doing more absurd stuff that I think was authentic, and that was him at that point. And when you hear him talking about working at Conan and eating tons of ice cream until he like kind of passed out, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's his life. Um, but there's that, and then there's the economy goes a certain way, the country goes a certain way, media goes a certain way, and then. Louis also grows in a certain direction, talks about more personal stuff at a time. It's darker yeah. at a time when I think the world got a little darker. You know what I mean? Like there's something that's out of your control too. I think that happens where there's like a, a kind of flashpoint. There's a flashpoint. There's like yeah. a synergy and like it, it like really all of the him. elements, they definitely do come together. Like, you know, as how much of it is, how much of it are sort of accidental qualities in the sense of, um, you know, if, if let's say if Louis were like a super handsome chiseled guy, yeah, would the material play as well, right. or does it part of it work because you know here's this guy who sort of looks blue collar, you know, yeah. is kind of bald, doughy, doughy guy, and then he comes out with these really brilliant philosophical uh, angles on very simple concepts that yeah. all people think that these really intelligent, it's obviously an incredibly smart guy. You know, is part of that, does part of that disarm the audience? Does that kind of, because one thing he's masterful at is saying some of the worst things that people could say on stage yeah. and get away, and, and you still are on his side. Yeah, yeah I, I always say that, like, you know, you can be funny or you can be cool. Pick one. Because I think as a comedian, like, you want to be cool sometimes or like a rock star, but... It's hard. I think it's hard to really be funny if you're if you're worried about that kind of a thing. Of course, because yeah. you're too guarded. You're too guarded. Yeah, yeah, like right coolness. There's an aloofness just built into it. And I remember Slovan and Allen used to say something like, um, "Muscles and suntans aren't funny," or <laughs> something like that. But I was like, you know, it's, I think that's kind of true. I think that's yeah. you know, there, I'm sure there are exceptions to every rule that you come up with, but generally they're they're interesting signposts that kind of help you understand it a little bit. Yeah, I think The Rock is pretty funny. The Rock is very funny. <laughs> I don't know if he he's would do stand-up, though. He's muscles and his last yeah. hour wasn't that good, though. <laughs> nah. Oh, my he's God. That mean the last so hour of Race to Witch Mountain, well, too? No, I mean when he's... He bought it back. Did you? How did you? See that? <laughs> he could buy it back. He could actually buy it back. Oh, he was in the wrong alley. Buy it back. He was in barbecue alley. <laughs> but it, uh, it it is interesting though to and I you know I've talked about this before with these guys and probably on this podcast but now starting the new hour and just being able to really ask a question which I didn't really ask before with the first hour which is what do I want to say yeah which is a very difficult question to answer yeah very difficult yeah. I can I can totally relate to what you're saying because. I think as my mood changes, just as a human being, of course, everybody in my audience or the large audience, they're, they're kind of subject to that rise and fall. Do you know what I mean? It's like Twitter's a perfect example 
were talking about this last night at Meltdown. Sarah was there and um, Doug Beds, Doug, Doug Benson, Benson, yeah. And um, I was saying, do you guys sometimes just don't feel like tweeting something that's supposed to be funny, but just like just an idea, or just trying to? You just feel something and you just kind of want to. Yeah, right, I'll it put just it comes here. out. Yeah. And then the responses you get. Although I stopped looking at my app replies a long time ago because it never felt better after that. But Beyonce. <laughs> oh, you're so smart. I am but Beyonce. It, but it would be like. That's not funny. You're falling off. You're not funny anymore. You suck. You fucking suck. Not funny. How'd you have a show? You know, and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, I know it's not funny. It actually wasn't supposed to be funny. I am a, a human. Like, it's not just yeah. always joke, 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 joke. No, joke, but, the, but I think the way people see you is that, you know... That's, it, my, that's my service for them. You know? That's your that's service for them. And, you know, because people, are, people have to categorize more in their brains than have ever had to in the history of mankind. Yeah. And I don't think... That we are, I don't think we're evolved to handle the amount of information that we have I to totally sort through. I totally agree. And so people, I think as a default, just see, they have to see everything very one dimensionally because that's the only way they can categorize yeah. everything in their brain. You're that guy to them. That's right. You're not a person, you're just a that's one right. dimensional output device. Right. And so if you step outside the definition of what they have to be able to categorize in your mind, that's just like, you know, their brain says, oh, that, uh, that's a glitch in the Matrix. I better point that out. That's partly why I called my special person. That last one, it was like Dimitri Martin person. It was just like, you know, just a <laughs> person. Like, I tell jokes because a human being, which of course I am. But, uh, but I thought very similarly to what you're saying. Yeah. Just this, I always say that in showbiz, like, you will be put into a box. Like, that's how it works. We are things that we're selling. So the trick is when you're anonymous, when nobody knows who you are, you just have to make the biggest, weirdest shape box possible. So when they put you in it, at least you can move around in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like if you're in a rush, I know guys, you guys know these guys and, and women who they start and they're like, they want to do Letterman, they want to, whatever, they want to get on TV, like get me out there, I want to be famous. And I'm always like, just nobody knows who you are. Like you have so much freedom. Yeah, <laughs> just experiment. Experiment, like do anything. And I guess you can always do that if you're really courageous. You, you could be Bob Dylan. And just be yeah. like, fuck everybody, I'm going electric. You can do that. Yeah. But hopefully when you do that, you still get to eat and make money along the way. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, it is. It, yeah, I, do, I definitely think the downside for the famous comics is that, um, first of all, people come to the show with a tremendous amount of expectation. Right. And they're just not given a lot of leeway to try stuff out. Right. Like if you're Chris Rock or, or Seinfeld, I mean, those guys are awesome and they're going to draw. Yeah, but they probably still want to grow as artists and try different stuff. Sure. Yeah, and because if you're not growing as an artist, like, are you still an artist? Right. Oh, philosophical. <laughs> this is calling it back. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded depressed saying it as much as we were hearing it. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's That's interesting. Right, it's, one of, it's one of the great luxuries and pleasures of getting to do comedy is that it's it's a very thoughtful journey. Mm-hmm. It, it can be, you know, you can be a clown and I guess just do really stupid stuff. And if you're lucky, you, that hits and you get the money. But did you ever did you feel competition with other one line joke comics? Because there was a there was a period where I feel like there was a mini explosion all around the same time. One like, don't you know, it was like 2001. It was, around, it was around 2001. Because well, you, you have Zach, you have Morgan Murphy, you have Dan Mintz, you BJ have BJ Novak. Novak. Yeah. yeah, everyone and was doing, I was even, that's when I started and that's was I was trying to do one liner. I tried and, I, and failed. I was the worst. Couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, you know, when I, I started in 1997 and I was a huge Stephen Wright fan. I watched a lot of comedy on TV in the 80s. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, so I never thought I was going to be a comedian. But I related to what Stephen Wright was doing because 
it's such a nerdy reason, but I love doing like puzzle books and stuff. And I like doodling and all this. So like there was something like aesthetically actually very pleasing that's like felt like it was fulfilling something mm-hmm. in me when I learned how to write jokes. My first set ever was 12 jokes. And they were like, I remember writing S colon P colon when I would write a joke. I would write like a puzzle. Like the setup ends at this word and the punchline begins with fascinating. Like my, my way in was very like technical. Mm-hmm. So when I started, understandably so, people said, you're Stephen Wright. And I was like, oh, yeah, I under- that makes sense. I'm influenced by him because that he was so different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Then I discovered Woody Allen, way back to Henny Youngman, and you realize, okay, it is a form. It's just that in the each era, there, were ve- there weren't that many people doing it. In the 80s, you do have Emo Phillips. You do have yeah. um, Brian kiley has been around quite a while. He's a Conan writer, and mm-hmm. he's a one-liner. Mm-hmm. So there are guys, but in terms of that mass popularity... Stephen Wright was kind of the guy, I think. Yeah, yeah. So when I started, everybody was like, you're Stephen Wright. Then, a few years in, Mitch Hedberg, who I'd never heard of. Of course, Mitch became Mitch Hedberg. Mm-hmm. So people start telling me, you're like, Mitch, you're Mitch, you're Mitch. And I'm like, I don't, who's Mitch? So then I see Mitch. He was in New York at the comic strip. I went, my friend's like, come up and you'll see this guy. And so I go to the comic strip. This is in the 90s or maybe 2000. And I watch Mitch and I'm like, yeah, okay, I see. You know, I'm similar. I was like, he's kind of a... I'm kind of a nerd. I mean, he's like a stoner guy. You know, you yeah. can draw distinctions immediately. To the larger world, what's the difference between me, Zach, Mitch, name him? He's a white guy who doesn't have a conventional haircut. <laughs> <laughs> the jokes aren't that long. But you know if, what I mean? you really, if you really, if you really uncover the layers, you you see that it's a difference. But I, I guess it's like saying like, well, that one band has a guitar player. Well, that band has a guitar player. Well, yeah. they must be the same. Well, same you know band. what it is. It's just, it just it, it again comes back to authenticity. Yeah. Like if I don't think in one-liners all the time. How long can I fake the funk for? If I'm really ripping someone off, then it's going to come out because you can't do it for that long. Did you ever meet Stephen Wright? Yeah. He was super nice. I've met him a couple times. He's, he's, I have a, a Stephen Wright story I can tell you guys. If, if Please. have the time here. He is like pretty close to my all-time favorite. When I was a kid, Bill Cosby, Stephen Wright. You know, I love Peter Sellers, but there's just a few comedy giants for anybody you know, who was in comedy. So I got booked to do... Um, one time I met him at Conan when I was a writer. And one of the writers brought me down who knew him. He was a guest on the show. This is when Conan was in New York, like in 2003, I guess this was. And I said, oh, Stephen, hey, I'm, I'm a comedian and I'm a fan and I'm influenced by you, but I think I'm kind of figuring out my own thing. He's like, you're the guy with the drawings, right? I said, yeah. He's like, those are hilarious. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, wow, thanks so much. I didn't realize you knew my stuff. He goes, yeah. He goes, I don't know about for you. He goes, but when I'm writing my, when I'm writing jokes, I mean... When I come up with new jokes, each one's only like 20 seconds long, so it takes me a long time to build up my act, you know? I said, yeah, and he's like, and it's only like one in every, like, you know, four or five that's like funny, I guess, that he comes up with. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I walk away, and I'm thinking, like, I have to come up with, like, 20 jokes probably to get a good one. I'm like, this guy's five times funnier than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Mathematically. But anyway, so years later... I got to do it. I got booked on a benefit in Toronto. My agent called me and said, Hey, it's just this benefit for this great thing. It's in this theater, and you're going to be the headliner. Do you want to do it? And it paid some money. I said, Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Sounds awesome. I like Toronto crowds. I don't know if. I love yeah, Toronto. Yeah, so we just went for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I loved Fantastic. It. They're great. So I was like, Absolutely. And then that was a few months out. And then a month later or something, or pretty close to the gig, my agent calls me back and he says, Hey, I just want to let you know they just added Stephen Wright to the show. They just booked Stephen Wright on the show, too. And I was like, am I still doing it? He said, yeah, yeah. 
There's a few comics, but Stephen Wright's gonna. This be was one. just a couple years ago. Yeah, a couple years. ago. I was at that festival. That was just for Laughs Toronto. Was it around then? Yeah, it was around summertime. Okay, yeah, it mm-hmm. might have been around. Then. Yeah, so I said, um, yeah, okay, I guess. So he's gonna he's gonna close out the show then, right? Because he said no, he's gonna be at the end of the first half. There's a break. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's not appropriate. I, I'm not comfortable with that. I think Stephen Wright should close out the show. Well, Stephen Wright's such a gentleman. He's such a laid back guy. He genuinely doesn't care. And he says, I'll talk to him, but I don't think he cares. And he says, he doesn't care whatever you want. I was like, I think he should close the show if he's comfortable with that. I just, I think he's Stephen Wright, and I'm who I am, and it's obviously. He's like, okay, yeah, sure. So he'll close the show. You'll close the first half. Great. We go to the show, and I do my thing, and it's totally fine. It goes great. And then Stephen Wright closes the show. Awesome. He's got amazing new jokes. I'm enjoying just watching the show. Next day, my next stop is Boston. So I go to the airport the next day, and I get on the plane. It's a small plane. And of course, Stephen Wright lives in Boston. And I'm not thinking. So I'm on the plane and I see Stephen Wright get on the plane. I talked to him for a couple minutes after the show th- that night, mm. the night before. And he was totally gracious and nice. And it was great. Like, oh, cool. Like, he remembered me. It was cool. Oh, nice. So the next day, I'm on the plane and I see Stephen Wright get on the plane. He's coming down the aisle. And I see him. He's just uh, such a subtle presence. But I, I'm in my seat and there's an empty seat across the aisle from me. And I see him stop and look at his ticket and look at me. And just I'm just sensing the smallest like facial change of like shit <laughs> i gotta sit across from this young guy this guy who's like kind of influenced but this is you know I, i'm feeling for the guy just having been on the other side of it sure. like at a college or something where you're like just please leave me alone like it's totally just please and so i i just just nod to him and i'm thinking i'm gonna leave the guy alone i'm not gonna bother him it's fine he's like hey he sits down and then so we just fly take off and like halfway through the flight, I'm thinking, I'm not going to bother him. If we don't talk, that's totally fine. I'm not going to bother him. But he initiates the conversation. He's like, so do you like flying? <laughs> so he's being so cool and like kind of talking to me. You know, so we're talking and saying, you know, I don't, I don't like it, but I've flown more than I ever thought I would in my life. I'm sure you guys have a similar experience. Mm. Yep. It's like, this is the job, you know? So I learned to deal with it. And he's like, yeah. I was like, did you ever go to Australia? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, that sucked, huh? He's like, yeah, you know what? That flight was so long that I almost kind of forgot that I was... It was just... A, he's saying funny stuff. That's just like... That's how his mind works. So we land, and he's like, you going to baggage claim? <laughs> I said, yeah. He's like, I'll see you there. All right. So he, <laughs> so he leaves. And then I get off the plane, and I'm heading to baggage claim, and then there's an escalator that goes down to baggage claim, and I see him right disappearing down the escalator, and at the top of the escalator, there's a guy with a sign that says my name on it. It's a driver take me to this, you know, hotel for my gig. He's like, "Do you have any bags?" And I don't. I just have carry on. I said, "No." He's like, "All right, the car's just out here." And so I have this moment of like, "Oh, so we're not going to go through baggage claim?" <laughs> <laughs> I told him I was going to go through baggage claim, but I guess I'll avoid that. Should I go down there and say goodbye to him, not have a bag, and then just go right back up? You know, I'm overthinking it. Of course, this is stupid. You know, so I realize I figure, let me leave the guy alone. And I take off so I don't go through baggage claim. And then like 15, 20 minutes later, I'm in the car. I'm almost at my hotel. The driver answers his phone. He's like, all right. He hands me the phone in the back seat. He says, the other driver's passenger wants to talk to you. <laughs> 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 Hello? Stephen Wright. 
I thought you said you were going to bed. Is that amazing? Oh my god! It was the best. It's a long story, but it was like for me, it was just totally thrilling. He's like, I'm living a Stephen Wright joke. I mean, which is the that is the ultimate gift. The ultimate gift. Being influenced by someone and then having them pull you into their world Uh, in that way. It totally is. I was just totally flattered and thrilled by the whole thing, and I said, "Oh man, I'm sorry." You know, I. Didn't know I was, but I didn't know it was downstairs, and so I just figured I'd leave you alone. He's like, I just want to say it was it was great working with you, and uh, you know, maybe I'll see you again because I'd seen him in Santa Monica on the street once. He's like, we've seen each other in weird places. Yeah, maybe I'll see you in some city someday. So like, yeah, next time you're in California, if you ever want to ride or something, I'll drive you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool. He was he was awesome. I mean, that guy's a class act. That's, he's brilliant, dude. Yeah. I mean, he's Stephen Wright. I met him uh, once, and I was in Vegas. I was I'd been up all night, and I walked past him in the hotel lobby and uh i was like i was like oh fuck it i was wearing this like dumb hat and these sunglasses because uh, i'd been up all night i was just, nice. it wasn't the right space i just threw i like took them off i threw them on the ground and like like clean you yourself know, up clean myself up a bit like uh, uh, and i went over to him i was like uh no mr Wright." he was like yeah and i was like i am uh, my name is john mccomic i'm a really really big fan of yours i grew up watching he's like oh cool what are you doing in Vegas? And then it just and then we ended up talking for about forty five minutes. That's amazing. Yeah, and um, yeah, he's like, I was like, well, I'll see you around. I guess I didn't know how to leave, and I start walking away. He's like, hey, Jonah, um, and like I turn around, and he, and he just offered me. He's like, how many friends you got with you? And I was like, oh, there's like five of us. He was like, well, give me your name. I'll write it that's down. Amazing. And then we all got into his show that night. That's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a nice story. I had to interview him once for I was. I wrote a piece for Wired about um, the joke writing process. Wow. And so I, I interviewed him and Bob Newhart and a, oh, yeah, and yeah. a couple That's of really great, great. people. And um, But my phone conversation with Stephen Wright was so uh, – it was very off-putting in the sense that I'm very bad at letting moments breathe. I always feel like I have to put noise in here. And Me too. he would – I would ask you. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm, ser- I, I'm serious, though. I know I, I'm a silence filler, man. I'm just like you. <laughs> and so he, I would ask him a question, and there would be a long pause to the point where it almost felt like, all right, he's either hung up or he doesn't like, you know, I'm building this whole story. Was there a lot of like, hello? Yeah. And then so just as I'm about to go, you don't have to answer then, and then he would answer. Wow. Mm-hmm. But there were so many, it was. He definitely, he definitely forced me to communicate in his rhythm, which was very hard mm. because his rhythm is totally different than mine. But he was a fascinating guy to talk to yeah. just about his, his, pro, his joke writing Yeah, he process. was talking about how he's like, yeah, I guess I've influenced a lot of guys, but I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, see, like, I don't see it. You know? uh, I like what other people are doing. And then he, uh, he talked about how it's so weird because he's like, I continually do comedy. I do shows all around the country. But like, because people don't see me on TV, they think I'm not doing comedy anymore. Yeah. Which oh, is a weird, which is a weird idea. He's I still... used to see him around Boston all the time. Yeah. That was super... Back when Boston had a comedy super. scene. Yeah. And it's cool because, you know, he, I like, left. he always mentions George Carlin as an influence. Like, he really likes George Carlin. Yeah. So it's just interesting. You can't escape yourself, even if, if he was ever trying to do Carlin. He's Stephen Wright. That's the way he talks in conversations, and like that's how it works, you know. Yeah, that's how you get to stick around. Is like you can't escape yourself. If you try to, you lose. He really was one of those guys. I mean, like I watched every comedy special in the '80s, and 
he was definitely one of those guys that if I heard he was in the lineup for something, I was like, oh, I'm going to keep watching this until I see him because it was just such, I mean, even emo, emo does do like, he sort of broadsides you with angles that you don't see coming, but a lot of them are stories that turn really hard. Twist around. It's not the, you know, that's true. I did this. And then, so this weird thing happened. I did this and this other weird thing. Like he's definitely, there is a mechanism that's similar, but, but emo's, Emo just kind of pulls you more mm-hmm. into these longer pieces. It's so amazing, too. But he'll have like a whole story about like like going on a date with a girl, but like every other line is just a crazy like punchline laugh yeah. line. It's incredible. You mean Steven or, or Emo? Uh, emo. Yeah. But it just kind of keeps on twisting to you know different areas. That's what I always sort of wanted that to. I was very envious of the guys who had who were weird characters on stage who yeah. were sort of because. It sort of seemed like once you build that as your character, it you can get away with a lot because yeah. no matter what you say, people are like, that's coming out of that weird character, so that yeah. must be really funny. But like just being is, a dude kind of sucks. The trick is if you want to work in other stuff. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that yeah. is the trick. And not just be that guy. Because Bobcat's talking Bobcat, about Bobcat, of yeah. course, yeah. of not having, to, not having to be Bobcat and everything. Because yeah. it's, it's weird. It's like, a, it's like a rocket booster that shoots you ahead. Right. And then you're like run out of fuel. So much faster. The yeah, candle you know, that burns yeah. twice as bright burns <laughs> half as long. Oh, and one. you have burned so very, very bright. Lady philosopher. What was that? No, that's from Blade Runner. <laughs> it's a oh, Terrell Corporation. Right before Rutger Hauer puts his fingers in his eyeballs. Spoiler alert. What? <laughs> if you haven't seen Blade Runner by now. You're probably not going to see Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> There's an 11 year old going, I was going to watch it tonight. You spoiled it for me. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, we're at about an hour, and this was uh, is there anything you have coming up that you want to talk about? Or Yeah, sure. I'll talk about um, people just switched off. <laughs> <laughs> he was going to well, say lunch. I'm pretty sure he was going to talk yeah. about lunch. No, so I, I did a. I did a an album along with that special, mm-hmm. but I recorded it separately. So I did an album in in a comedy club in Minneapolis at Acme. Acme is uh, a great club. Great, yeah. So that I have that out there now. It's the same title, Dimitri Martin, stand-up comedian. But you know, with my special, I had some drawings, and I did this thing with flyers. So those are visual bits. Sure. So, and the special that airs is only forty minutes about. Mm-hmm. So I got about an hour long album that's like 20 minutes of different stuff that I worked really hard on so I'm trying to get people to at least download it or something and then I got a book of drawings coming out in the spring oh that's right yeah. I remember that I yeah. remember you telling me about that it's taking me a while it was supposed to come out this fall and I missed my deadline and it, I've been st- it's just taking so long to actually do the drawings because I got like like a dipping pen and ink oh. I'm trying to learn how to really do ink drawings mm-hmm. and I did more than I was going to do for the book so I think it'll be a better book it'll be thicker but it's called Point Your Face at This. And I think it's on pre-sale before Christmas. Now, Dimitri, because the thicker book doesn't always mean it's better. No, I know. But this one <laughs> is like, I made sure that... It's quality thickness. I met, some, yeah. uh, I met this other one-line comic who's doing a book of drawings, but with a quill. Oh, shit. Is it the ghost of Mitch Hedberg? It's <laughs> 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 Henny Youngman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am a spectral being. I can pass my hand through your corporeal body. <laughs> Here I go. Boo. Why do you go say boo? I don't know. It just feels <laughs> yeah. like... Well, that's a good impression. What are they disapproving of? <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I am doing poorly at a show, I ask myself, is this room haunted? 
think you guys just wrote a good bit. I think yeah, I just wrote yeah. a good bit for Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> or Mitch Deadberg, who is zombie Mitch Hedberg. Well, thanks wow. for joining us, Dimitri. <laughs> yeah, I, really, I think I uh, hope we had a good time. Thanks for being on the very last Nerd Podcast. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? It's actually, closes. I mean, it's kind of cool because you guys are obviously not only comedians but comedy fans, which is nice. Some people are comedians and they're also kind of cranks about the whole no, thing. No, no. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't. I don't know. You know, some people who just use comedy as a vehicle... I don't get it. Yeah. Like I can never imagine a time where I won't want to do stand up. Yeah. You know, where it's like, I yeah, I'm I made it to a certain point that I thought I wanted to get to. I don't need to do that shit anymore. Also, you know, one of the funnest parts about when you're starting out doing comedy, you know, I, I always tell comics that, you know, are looking guys that want to start doing comedy or want advice, I tell them, Well, you know, half of it is hanging out and talking about comedy after the show. Yeah. Like do your shows, but then go with some other comics to a coffee shop and just talk about comedy and right. comedy theory and just be really, you know, dumb about it. Be nerdy about it. And like, you know, cause that's is like the reason you often get into comedy is cause you're not getting laid. And then when you <laughs> stay and talk about comedy with other comics, you continue to not get laid. Yeah. That's right. And that helps you keep writing material. <laughs> yeah. Forever. <laughs> it's a wonderful cycle. Yeah. Chase the unattainable carrot. <laughs> Do you feel like that you have to have a certain amount of dissatisfaction in order to be a comic? Um, I feel like, and maybe I oversimplify things, but if I follow my kind of authenticity rule, I personally deal a lot with that in life. And I think a lot of people do. I think, I don't know if you have to, but if I, I guess what I'm saying is if I'm being authentic, then I'm acknowledging the dissatisfaction that I'm feeling with life, mm -hmm. and there I find comedy. But maybe there's someone who is very, very slightly dissatisfied with life or un, you know, doesn't have that problem. I don't know if they come up with comedy. Well, then... Then the follow -up, the follow up question is, do you feel like you maybe unconsciously generate dissatisfaction with things that are probably fine because you need to analyze, break down, you know, create it? Um, I think I probably did that before I did comedy, but it's that kind of causation thing. Is it A causes B? B causes A, or C sure. is the external cause of both A and B, or something? You know what I mean? And yeah. I think it's kind of I might fall in the camp where I don't, I haven't quite found a way to mine my pain so directly and literally that sure. I can make that kind of comedy. And I don't think I'm stuck in that trap yet of like, oh man, I got to go live hard so I can talk about mm. my adventures and make that my content. I'm not in a direct cannibalizing okay. kind of cycle yet. I don't know if I ever will be. So I still, I like escapism. And I think most of my stuff is I still like to escape into thinking and I, like kind of those kinds of things. I guess games. I'm just digging around to find out because I, I feel like something that I've noticed about myself lately is that, you know, I might analyze things or pick things apart that are perfectly fine, even just like personal situations. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because I'm so conditioned between comedy and also the work, the work that I yeah. do and running the stuff that I run of like, Constantly having to give notes, constantly having to analyze things with comedy, mm. constantly trying to deconstruct and figure out that. I mean, it's almost I find sometimes that with personal situations, it's sort of like smashing a toaster, taking it apart, and then trying to fit it back together when it was a perfectly fine toaster before. I, I think there's something to what you're saying. If you were a professional basketball player, your brain and body would have to be used the amount of hours you have in a day, you'd have to direct it to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you would literally build up those muscles and neural pathways, I think, in a very different way. And instead, you have a career, all of us here have one, that is a very different use of our time, brain, energy, and focus. And it, I think it does start to fold onto itself. And it's like, 
you know what I mean? I read this great book about neuroplasticity, I don't know, five, seven years ago. And I, it was so interesting because I don't remember a lot of it and I didn't understand fair amounts of it. That's kind of a joke right there. Yeah. I read a joke about neuroplasticity and I don't remember a lot. Of it. <laughs> no, exactly. yeah, I think it was five or eight, ten years <laughs> exactly. ago. I know my head's plastic. <laughs> no, but the, the, one of the gist of the book was they used to think that when you're a kid, of course, your brain is pliable and open and there's so many different ways you can go. But as you age, it starts to cement and things can't change. It's harder to learn language and so on and so forth. And the, while a lot of that is true, I don't think to the degree that they thought it was. Okay, good. So it's like the choices you make and the behaviors that you engage in, they actually literally physically change the shape of your brain and the neural pathways by repeated behaviors. So putting aside questions of free will and what you can choose and not choose to do, let's just say you can choose to do certain things. It's really interesting. Like you actually reinforce those behaviors and everything. So it's interesting to hear you saying mm. that because I think that might be a legitimate thing. I think there is some sort of a weird kind of like subconscious auto-determinism. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the older you get, the more energy it takes to perform a lot of tasks. And yeah. so you just create shortcuts. You don't expend as much energy as you would expend before to try to create new pathways. And that's why people get comfortable and yeah. protected and like, ah, fuck new things. I don't, I don't have the energy for new things. Comfort. I mean, there's it comfort, is comfort and certainty for sure. Yeah. This was a fun podcast. We, You have to come back. Uh, I, I definitely come back on when your book comes out. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, it's good to see you, Demetri Martin, in person. Yeah. Demetri Martin, stand-up comedian. Is available now. You're fine. Or, what is <laughs> what, what's happening to you? Now Chris? we're going to check hey, in with traffic. Chris, your nose Matt Meyer, what's going out there on the five freeway? Yeah, thanks for well, having it's me, guys. Backed up all the way to the <laughs> Matt, ten. Come on. By the way, congrats on your hour, Chris. Thank you. It was nice to do them very close to each other in time. Thank you. Oh, you can't hear this. No, I can't. What's happening? Go ahead and do your traffic report. Well, four or five is backed up to the ten. Looks like a lot of traffic going off La Cienega. Oh, over here. Oh, looks like there's an incident over on the uh, 101. It's not working. I have to keep hitting the button, so it keeps sounding like your engine is stalling every three seconds. Matt, I'm get just, out! Get I'm dropping, out we're dropping here. We're dropping pretty fast. Oh, that blade's kicked. Oh, boy. Oh, Matt, the engines are down! No, yeah, we're going down fast. There's got to be a big holdup right here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in to Sky 5. You're going to I don't know where the explosion button yeah. is. Kablam! Enjoy a burrito. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.